Book One from the point of view of Mrs. Gildea. Chapter Nine of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. It was not an altogether successful party. The dinner had portentous suggestiveness. The Leichardtstonians were at first rather difficult. Sir Luke a little too conscious of his responsibilities towards the British throne. Lady Talent so brilliant as to be bewildering. But except as it concerns Lady Bridget and McKeith, the Talent's first dinner party at Government House is not of special importance in this story. Mrs. Gildea, very well occupied with Dr. Plumtree, only caught diagonal glimpses of her two friends a little lower down on the opposite side of the table and in occasional lulls of conversation the musical ring of lady bridget's rapid chatter colin did not seem to be talking much but every time mrs gildea glanced at him he appeared absorbed in contemplation of the small pointed face and the farouche golden-brown eyes turned up to him from under the top-heavy mass of chestnut hair lady bridget at any rate had a great deal to say for herself and Mrs. Gildare wondered what was going to come of it all. Conversation became more general as champagne flowed and the courses proceeded. Sir Luke, discreetly on the prowl for information, attacked Antipodean questions, the blacks, for instance. He had observed the small company of natives theatrically got up in the war-paint of former times, which, grouped around the dais on which he had been received at the state landing, had furnished an effective bit of local colour to the pageant. Up to what degree of latitude might these semi-civilised, and he feared demoralised beings, be taken as a survival of the indigenous population of Leichardt's land? Did wild and dangerous blacks still exist up north and in the interior of the colony? "'You'd better ask McKeith about that, Your Excellency,' said the Premier. "'He knows more about the blacks up north than any of us.' The Governor inquired as to the amenability of the Australian native to missionary methods of civilization, and one of the other ministers broke in with a laugh. Bible in one hand and backy in the other. No, sir, the executor hall and general Gordon principles aren't workable with our blacks. Kindness doesn't do. The early pioneers soon found that out. Lady Bridget had stopped suddenly in her talk with Colin, and was listening, her eyes glowering at her companion. Why didn't kindness do? she asked sharply. Yes, Mr. McKeith, tell us why the early pioneers abandoned the gentle method, said the governor. McKeith's face changed. It became dark, and a dangerous fire blazed in his blue eyes. Because they found that the blacks repay kindness with ingratitude, treachery, foul murder. He pulled himself up as though afraid of losing command of himself if he pursued the subject. His voice thrilled with some deep-seated feeling. Mrs. Gildea, who understood the personal application, broke in across the table with an apposite remark about her own early experiences of the blacks. Lady Bridget impatiently addressed McKeith. Go on. What do the blacks do now to you people to make you treat them unkindly? What do they do now? To us squatters, you mean. Colin had recovered himself. Why, they begin by spearing our cattle, and then they take to spearing ourselves. Did they ever spear you? she asked. Colin smiled at her grimly. Well, you wouldn't have noticed, of course, that I've got just a touch of a limp. It's only if I'm not in my best form that it shows. I owe that to a spear through my thigh one night, that the blacks rushed my camp when I was asleep, and I'd given their gins rations that very morning. And then? Lady Bridget's voice was tense. Oh, then, after they'd murdered a white man or two, the rest of us whites, there wasn't more than a handful of us at that time up on the Lura, banded together and drove them off into the back country. We had a dangerous job with those blacks, until King Mograbar was shot down. 
King Mograbar? How cruelly unjust! It was his country you were stealing! She accentuated the last word with bitter scorn. "'Well, if you come to that, I suppose Captain Cook was stealing when he hoisted the British flag in Botany Bay,' said McKeith. "'And if he hadn't, what about the glorious British record and the march of civilization? put in Verica Wells. Bridget shot a scathing glance at the aide-de-camp. "'I don't admire your glorious British record. I think it's nothing but a record of robbery, murder and cruelty, beginning with Ireland and ending with South Africa.' "'Oh, my dear, I warn you!' said Lady Tallant, bending from her end of the table, and addressing the Leichardtstonians generally. Lady Bridget is a little Englander, a pro-Boer, a champion of the poor oppressed native. If she had been alive then, she'd have wanted to hand India back to the Indians after the mutiny, and now, when she has made Cecil Rhodes Emperor of Rhodesia, she'll give over all the rest again to the Dutch. Bridget responded calmly to the indictment. Yes, I would. If Cecil Rhodes were to decline the emperorship of all South Africa, which I should make his job, but you'd better add on that I'm a socialist too, Rosamond, because I've become one, as you know. I think the working man is in a shamefully unjust position, and that the capitalists are no better than slave-drivers. Oh, not out here, my word, exclaimed a Leichhardtstonian, who happened to be one of the old squatocracy. The landowners and the capitalists are not slave-drivers, they are slave-driven. We've got to pay what the trades union organisers tell us, or else go without stockmen and shearers. Fact is, our labour war is only just beginning, and I can tell you, sir, that before a year is out, the so-called bloated capitalist and the sheep and cattle station owner will sing either pretty big or very small. I don't think it will be very small on my station, murmured McKeith, but it's quite true about the labour war. They're organising, as they call it, already all along the Laura. The Governor asked to have the labour situation explained from the squatter's point of view, and for a few minutes McKeith forgot to look at Lady Bridget. He was on his own ground, and knew what he was talking about. "'It's this way,' he began. "'You see, though, I'm cattle, and I'm the furthest squatter out my way. But there are a few cheap stations down the river, and there isn't an unlimited supply of either cattle hands or shearers, so we've got to look sharp about hiring them.' Now, last year, we, of course I'm classing myself with the sheep owners, for we all stand together, hired our shearers for seventeen shillings and sixpence a day. Then, up come the union organisers, form a union of the men, and say to them, You've got to pay ten shillings down to the union, and sign a contract that you won't shear under twenty shillings a day. The organiser pockets the ten shillings, and makes three pounds a week, and his expenses beside, so it pays him pretty well. Well, then the shearers go to the squatters. All right, they say, we'll shear your sheep, but it's going to be twenty shillings instead of seventeen and six. The squatters grumble, but they've got to have their sheep shorn, and they pay the twenty shillings. Next year, I'm told, the word is to go around that it's to be twenty-two and sixpence. Well, sir, we're to see what's to happen then. The labour talk lacked a local picturesqueness, so Luke preferred the blacks, and started the question of danger to white men in the out-districts. How far had officialdom penetrated into the back-blocks? He understood that Mr. McKeith had explored for the laying of a telegraph line to the Big Bite. Could Mr. McKeith give him any information about all that? McKeith explained again. He had stopped a week, he said, at the last outpost of Leichhardt's land civilization. The telegraph master there lived in a hut made of sheets of corrugated zinc, raised on piles twenty feet high, and fortified against the blacks. The entrance to it was masked, spear-proof, and had two men always on guard. There were four men at the post. McKeith told a gruesome story of an assault by the natives, and of rifles at work through gun-holes in the zinc-tower. 
Lady Bridget listened in silence. Now and then she looked up at McKeith, and though her eyes gave forth ominous red-brown sparks, they had in them something of the same unwilling fascination Joan Gildea had noticed in the eyes of Colin McKeith. End of Book One, Chapter Nine